All right, we're in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. One of our ushers will bring you one. If you don't own one, this is our gift to you. Uh, we have, we're, we're continuing our study in, in 2 Timothy, and I just, this text today, just as a forewarning, this text is a, is a, is a pretty heavy text. It's a pretty weighty text. There's, um, it's gonna, we're gonna speak, Paul's gonna speak a lot to about evil, pervasive evil in culture and how it affects real people in real lives and, and how Christians navigate that uh, and, and it's, it's gonna affect relationships. And so there's just a, uh, there's a pretty big weight to this text here. And so I uh, just issued that as the, the warning. Um, some of the stuff that's in here we're gonna talk about, you're even gonna see men abusing women. Things like that just really infuriate me. So I'm gonna try to uh, not be infuriated publicly. Uh, but uh, we'll see what happens. So pray for me. Here we go. Uh, some context here. Some context here. We're ending off. We're ending uh, off from last week where, where Paul has told Timothy that in the church and in the world where, where we live, work, and play, that there are some people uh, that are used by Satan and they don't even know it. That they're bound, they're captive by Satan and literally being used by him. By, 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 by the prince of lies, the father of lies, Satan himself. Uh, and his minions, we call demons, uh, they're, they, they're seeking to destroy everything that God builds. They've been doing that from the beginning. So when Adam and Eve showed up, they got married, they had a call in their life. The serpent Satan showed up and he sought to not only ruin their marriage, but to ruin humanity. And so sin has, been, has, been in, has entered into the world through, uh, uh, by, by, by sinful men's choosing and by content, their content. Annual rebellion. So we're sinners by nature, meaning we inherit it from Adam, and we're sinners by choice, meaning we love to keep doing it. And so uh, that's the world we live in, and so come, come with that world comes with uh, some things that we must understand. And so he says it this way, what we must understand, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, but understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Some of your translations may say will come stressful times, literally intense times of, of increased stress or distress or, or just plain difficulty because of opposition. Uh, and so sometimes that's people opposing you. Sometimes that's family opposing you. Those who know, love, and trust Jesus, if your family doesn't know, love, and trust Jesus, there may be a point in time where your faith becomes a, a, a point of contention. See, we don't look for fights as Christians, but we're ready for when they come. And they come. We don't fight uh, like with the weapons of the world. We're not fighting to harm people. We're just sharing the truth about what we believe. But if you know, love, and trust Jesus, opposition will come. Sometimes it's through 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 uh, uh, individuals. Sometimes it's through relationships. Sometimes it's through people. Other times, uh, it's just difficulty in life and circumstances and and just just financial difficulty. There's just opposition at every turn. Uh, the enemy hates you. Not all things are his fault, uh, but, but he does hate you. You just got to understand that. And so Paul is telling the, the Christians here, uh, to, to Timothy and to the church that he's leading, you got to understand some things. You got to understand some things. That in the, the last days, and that, that there's going to be some difficulty. Now, what does he mean by last days? Now, some of you, depending on uh, how old you are and when you grew up and how long you've been a Christian, most of you are, you know, first-generation Christians, so that's, praise God for that. But uh, sometimes last days, you're like, oh, no, what he's talking about is like right before Jesus comes back, the end times, or, you know, you have a chart, some of you might, for that. That's not what he's talking about. Last days according to the scriptures. This is what it is. It's when Jesus came. Jesus inaugurated the, quote, last days. That's when the last days began. And they're still, uh, we're still in, um, uh, in, in some of the, se the season of the last days. And it's defined this way, according to the scriptures. See, we, we got to go to the Bible to define terms. And so the, the Bible defines the last days in this way. In Acts 2, 14 through 17, Peter's going to quote the Old Testament. He's going to, uh, 14 through 17, he's going to quote the Old Testament. So it, it began before Peter, before New Testament, Old Testament, Jesus, or Peter's quoting, says, but Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. And what did he say? He said, in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He's quoting uh, Joel, and then he's speaking in the present because the Holy Spirit's about to be given. So he's talking literally in the last days. He's not saying, oh, there's a day coming which God will give you his spirit. He's saying right now. Right now, when, when Peter says this, quotes this Old Testament passage, it's happening. So 
Paul's readers are in the, the, quote, last day. So he's not telling them, hey, the last days are coming. Get ready. Buckle up your seatbelt. There's a day coming. He's saying you're in it. You're in it right now. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says, long ago, many, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these the context in which he's writing, these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, his, Jesus. So Jesus and, and the, the coming of Christ brought the, the ending of one, uh, the Jewish era into the, the kingdom era, where Jesus' kingdom would reign. Where Jesus, at the end of Matthew, says, all authority has been given to me, and that Jesus is the king seated on the throne after his resurrection. Jesus is, is on the throne right now, where, from which he will come to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is king now. His kingdom reigns now. His kingdom is happening in these days, which there's difficulty. I need you to see this, because this is so important. Because if you don't believe Jesus is king you don't believe he is reigning, you don't believe he is ruling, you don't believe he is, is on the throne, you don't believe he is sovereign, you don't believe he's in control, then when you face difficulty, what happens? I have no hope, man. We're like, you know, if you know the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, like, you know, their God was on the toilet. Our God is not. He's on a different throne. It's the only throne. It's the king's throne. That's where our God is. He's not, we're not, he's not tied up. He's not busy. He's not, you know, not able to come to our rescue. He's ever-present, and, and he's, he's ready to help us in any of our time of need. Our God, Jesus, is ruling and reigning. It matters because when difficult times come, when stressful times come, we got to have hope that our king is there with us. So this is the context here. Jesus has come. His kingdom is reigning. So with this, what Paul is saying you must understand that in these times, there are going to be difficulty. What he's talking about is when the kingdom of God is advancing, it comes with opposition. The, when the kingdom of God advances, it comes with opposition. I was told this week that every time that God wants to lead a change, sabotage happens. It's true. Everywhere in Scripture, when God's people are leading change, there's, there's all of a sudden demonic sabotage happening. Some of you are experiencing that right now. Some of like, every time we're advancing the gospel, advancing the kingdom, or I'm advancing in my marriage, or advancing as a father or a mother in my, in my, in my home, I'm advancing as a, as a Christian in, in growing in holiness and righteousness, it just feels like there's just intense opposition. Something just knocks me off the track. There is. There is. So why is Paul telling us, hey, we need to really, really, really understand that there's going to be some intense times, times of stress, times of difficulty, times of, of, of just opposition and duress. Why is he telling us this? He's telling us this first so that we understand that the kingdom has come, and when the kingdom, when the kingdom comes, the rebels fight. The rebels are still fighting against the king. So don't be surprised when, you know, the kingdom is advancing and Satan and demons don't like that. Don't be surprised. Number two, there are times of peril, in times of peril and stress and difficulty, we need to have hope that the kingdom will still advance. The kingdom, we're reading a book, we're reading God speaking to us through the Apostle Paul to Timothy, to a church, and we're still here today, 2,000 years later, worshiping the same God. Why? Because the kingdom didn't stop. You see this. So when you face difficulty as a Christian, you should understand that the kingdom cannot be stopped. It must and it will continue to advance, not because of you, but because of he who is the king, Jesus. He wants to use you. We're told in Galatians 6 that we will have a harvest if we don't give up. If you give up, Jesus won't. He'll keep going. You just will miss the fruitfulness of it. The kingdom will still advance. Additionally, we shouldn't be surprised when people's hearts are hardened to the point of opposition, or they just oppose you. It's interesting, the, the group that claims to be the most tolerant and diverse in our world today are the, the most loud and obnoxious to, tell, to point out that, you know, we are the most intolerant and not diverse people. How tolerant and diverse of them to not be welcoming of Jesus. Don't worry. They did that to Jesus too. They weren't, he wasn't tolerant and diverse enough for them in their days. There's one God, one King, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one way. Anyone can come and they killed him. 
He fed a bunch of people. He healed a bunch of people. It doesn't matter how much good you do for society. If you preach the gospel that Jesus preached, it will come with opposition. Hearts will be hardened and people will oppose Jesus and his kingdom. Every time God advances something, like I said, Satan comes to kill and destroy it. It's happened from the beginning. But Paul wants us to understand this, to be clear about this, so that we can be prepared. So Timothy's church can be prepared, so our church can be prepared. Why? So that we can endure and advance the kingdom. See, when you are prepared for something, if you know what's coming, you're more likely to endure it. Depending on, some of you went to grad school, and if you're in grad school, someone says, hey, this, this, these few years are hard, they're tough, just get through it. And if you get through it, then on the other side, you'll be grateful for it. Or, you know, like all the, the new parents we have, first year time parents, first six months, first three months are like awful. Next three months, a little bit better. But by you get to a year, you're like, hey, I might try that again. I just, that day comes if you're a new parent. Just hold on. Just endure. And so why do we share that? Why do we tell people that? So that they can't endure they can endure. So they have, they have their, their eyes set on some hope that, you know, we can endure. We can endure this. We can endure this. So Paul is preparing the church and his people uh, so that they can have endurance. And that, the, and that not just to endure, to get through the season, but so that while they are enduring, they can advance the kingdom. This is Paul writing his last letter of the Bible, the last book he'll write. He's about to be executed and murdered for being a Christian. He understands deeply what it means to be a, a, a faithful witness to Jesus even to death. He understands it. He's, he's at the end of his race. He wants to pass the baton to Timothy, and he wants him to keep passing the baton so that the kingdom continues to advance even in the midst of opposition. In church, we have, the, we have the good news. We are living proof that it did, that it did advance. In our day, we might experience some, some hostile opposition, but we have great news that the kingdom of heaven tends to advance faster the more pressure, the more difficulty that it's put through. And so we believe that the kingdom will advance, but we, we believe it will advance in the old-fashioned way, not by force. We're not, it's by faith. The kingdom of heaven advances not by force, but by faith. See, oftentimes we talk about a king and a kingdom and advancement and ruling and reigning and, you know, taking, taking, um, make, taking ground, you know, moving forward, the ball forward. People just assume wrongfully that you're just going to force everyone. So what we're talking about. We're talking about kingdom advancement through faith in Jesus. Jesus taking a sinner, taking their heart, changing it, making it new. Just as you became a Christian, so God wants to make those who are not a Christian, Christians too. He wants to save them. He wants to adopt them. He wants to redeem them. And that comes to the old-fashioned way, the preaching of the gospel. We're told that faith comes by hearing, hearing of the word of Christ. If you don't share the word of Christ, they cannot know. That's why we gotta, we gotta preach. It comes through prayer. It comes, it comes at, at, in, the, in the closet where we're, where we're, where we're hiding, where we're withdrawing to be with the Lord, not because we're afraid, but because we're pleading with him for power and help to see lost souls saved, to see people uh, come to know and meet Jesus, to see obstacles bear, uh, overcome. Literally, we're praying against demonic opposition strongholds, we're told in prayer, are demolished through prayer. It comes through repentance. We talked at length week in and week out about repentance. It comes through sound doctrine. That's how the church continues to advance. This is all in the first two chapters that we've been speaking of in 2 Timothy and all of 1 Timothy. And so here, the kingdom, we know that it will advance and in Revelation, we're told that it advances through the blood of the Lamb. That's the gospel of Jesus and the word of Christians' testimonies. It means that you got to proclaim it. Jesus, how Jesus saved you. Now tell others how and who he is. I love it. The other day, I was talking to someone who uh, in here, um, and I'm, I'm not going to look at him, you know, so I'll just look around the room so you don't think I'm talking about you. But, uh, you know, how did, how, did, how did you get saved? And someone asked, you know, is it, was it this or was it that? No, they said, the Holy Spirit just opened my eyes to see. See, that's what God does. He, he takes blind people and gives them sight, helps them see, believe. That's the work of God. It's powerful. It's a testimony. And that's how the kingdom of God continues to advance and still to this day. 
And so not only must we understand that there are evil times, but we must understand that evil is pervasive. We need to understand this. Evil is pervasive. So the pervasive evil he talks about here in, in, in verse 2. He says it this way. For people will be lovers of self. I just want you to think about just some of these words and think about the country you live in. See if this rings a bell. Uh, for people will become lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its, its power. Avoid such people. Evil's pervasive. Evil is pervasive. Sin is pervasive. Sin, we are sinners by nature and by choice. See, when, we, when Adam sinned, Eve sinned, and after that, their sons sinned. Immediately, it went from disobeying God, eating a piece of fruit that we were forbidden to eat, to all of a sudden, one brother kills the next brother. Sin, if it has its way, will destroy you. Sin, if it has its way, will destroy the world we live in. Sin, if it has its way, will destroy everything in its wake. And the only thing that can stop sin in the, in the pervasive evil is Jesus. Evil cannot be curbed on its own. So we have laws. Because if we don't have laws, then people will, will do what Cain and Abel did. We'll just get mad and murder the guy. Because he was jealous. The laws that God has given his people in the world we live in, we see in Romans 13, are given to us to, to push back and to curb evil, to, to, to correct unrighteousness. But the only way an evil heart, a wicked heart, gets transformed and stops going the path of evil and destruction is to be saved by Jesus. Here's the good news. Jesus only saves evil people. Like, I got saved. I'm not evil. Check again. You are. You are. We are. We are. You were. You were evil if you, before you met Jesus. He's now made you clean. He's, he's now, now you are now righteous in Christ's sight. But sin is pervasive. It's like, the, it's like yeast in dough. It just spreads quickly. And so this is the way that, that sin spreads. It spreads in, through our heart, through our mind, to our heart, to, to our action. If you read Romans 1, that's exactly how it started. They had a debased mind. It, it ruled their heart, and then it led to actions. Same with the world we live in today. Same with what he is saying here today. So let's look at some of the things he is speaking to about this pervasive evil. First thing we must see in this list of like 15 different things that he is saying here is the first issue I want you to see that, that kind of the glue that connects them all the first issue is who do you love that's the first issue see notice in here that it, who, who they love that's the issue they love self they love money they do not love good and they love pleasure and they do not love God that those are those are the first those are things that 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 will then from there permeate and be pervasive into the entire life of, of this evil that's, that's spreading among not only the world, but among God's people. So it starts with who you love. It starts with who you love. They're, they're selfish in their love. They're selfish with their use of money. They love money. They, 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 love, they don't love what God calls good. They call evil good instead of calling good what God calls good. They don't they love pleasure, but not pleasure that comes from knowing God, who we're told through the scriptures that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. They, they forsake the pleasure that's found in a relationship with God for fleeting worldly pleasure. The issue here is who they love. It's who they love. See, love, another way we can describe love is who you worship. What you love is what you worship. Talk about this all the time. The, the issues are really not sin issues. They're worship issues. They're love issues. Who do you love most? Who do you worship most? Who, that's, that's the issue. If you love Jesus and you love him the most and you worship him above all things, then you will be a steward of everything else. You will steward money differently because you love Jesus. Money does not become an idol, but it becomes a tool that you use to, to bless people, to serve people, to, to, to be a part of the kingdom activities. You, you use money as a tool. You don't worship money. You don't worship money. When you love Jesus, when you worship Jesus, 
Additionally, you use your time, you love yourself, you don't worship yourself, so you, you, you align yourself under the mercy and grace of Jesus. You go, hey, I, I, don't, I don't define who I am. Jesus defines the self. He, who does Jesus say I am? What does Jesus call me to do? Where our definitions come from the God of the scriptures. Who you worship determines these things determines how you spend your time. It determines how you spend your money. It's, it, just, it determines how you steward your wealth, your time, your talent, your treasure. Uh, who you worship defines what good is. If you worship Jesus and you worship the God of the Bible, then what the Bible says is good is the definition of good. If you don't worship Jesus, then whoever you worship, whatever you love, will define good. The world we live in redefines good every you know, election cycle. It does. Four to eight years, you know, and halfway in between, we get some blurry view of love. They just, that's what it is. See, God never changes his mind on what love is. People do, and they forsake their God. That's what's happening here. They don't worship him, so they redefine what good is for humanity, what good is for themselves. And then how they see if you love Jesus, that will de- who you worship determines how you will steward pleasure, how you will seek pleasure. See, what we do in our cultures um, in many of these things, uh, we've taken good things, money, pleasure, you know, uh, g- you know, good benevolency. We've taken those things. We've taken a good thing and we made it a God thing. And we've inverted what God has, has declared in a creed and, and created our own definition. And it comes out of selfishness. We love ourselves more than we love God. Who you worship will determine how you steward your money, how you define good, and how you seek and steward pleasure. See, pleasure is, not, is something our society is wrapped up in. And so this, what, it, what is pleasure? Pleasure is not just, uh, it is uh, sex, it is also comfort and entertainment. Our world is, this is the United States of America. Sex is our God, comforts our God, and entertainment's our God. And if you can get it all in one place, then you know, there's your holy place. It's called the internet oftentimes because it you know, keeps you distracted from your work through memes and through uh, scrolling. And then it, it gets you your, your sex fix online because, you know, that's, uh, and you're like, oh, how, how does he know? Well, because it's the most, the most money-making industry in the entire world is the sex industry. Billions of dollars are made. More money than NBA, NFL, NHL, all the sports teams combined, MLB, all of them together. The sex industry makes more money. Billions of dollars. Money, that's where our money's going to pleasure. It's then going to entertainment. We want to be, we're entertained to death in our society. But we're not happy. We're not more uh, friendly. We're, we're, we're miserable and ruined. Why? Because we for, we've, we've forsaken the God of the Bible and we, we went to worship ourselves. We worship pleasure and not God. You know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see what we are doing does not lead to human flourishing. Like, everyone knows this. Even non-Christians are like, you probably shouldn't be on your phone all the time. You probably shouldn't be uh, looking at porn all the time. You probably, you know, all these things, this is, these are not really helpful things. You probably should eat a good diet. You probably should, you know, get some sleep. There's all these things. Because the world we live in, when, you, when you're consumed with self, you can't. Stop self. You can't stop self. See, see, this is what he says. He says that this results in, he says, you, you become like what you love most. It results in proud, being proud, arrogant, conceited. See, isn't that the temperament of our, of our nation? Proud, arrogant, conceited, or this one, lacks self-control. See, why would you limit self if self was who you worshiped? If you're like, I don't, I don't have self-control, here's why. You worship yourself. If you worship Jesus, Jesus bridles self because self is not the object to be worshipped. I have no self-control. Yeah, you should if you're a Christian. It's one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. They're unappeasable. This is a, a, rest, a restless heart. You can't be satisfied. 
Have you ever seen this? You go from one addiction to the next addiction to the next addiction to this group of friends to that group of friends. Oh, I was in this political party, and now that political party changed, now I'm in there. And then when they go back, I'll change. We just keep changing your social, political, emotional uh, entertainment. You, you just move from place to place to place to place because you're unappeased and unsatisfied. Our hearts are restless, St. Augustine said, until they find their rest in thee, meaning God. You are made to worship the Lord Jesus, and your heart will be restless until it finds its rest in Jesus. So the evil pervades, it continues. You become like what you love most. So we are arrogant, conceited people. Lacking self-control, the world around us, we see this. And then it affects, right, the evil that's pervasive now affects how we treat others. It says they're abusive. They're abusive. The result of this, of who you were, you need to see this, the result of who you worship will ultimately lead to how you treat people. See, Jesus was not abusive. He was tender to the brokenhearted. He corrected and rebuked the, the stubborn and obstinate religious people. He was tender towards women and children. He didn't seek to harm or hurt them. What ends up happening is those with debased minds, those with, uh, who, who love themselves eventually find themselves in the category of, of abuser. Why? Because they can't control themselves. So anyone who invades their pleasure, their world, their joy, their kingdom, they're going to fight to keep them out. Sometimes that's emotional. Sometimes that's physical. But whatever it is, this abusive spirit, it's the same spirit of the, uh, of, of the age. It's the same spirit that comes from the serpent and Satan. It's, this, it's the selfish serpent-like spirit that reigns. It's pervasive. And then another of its kind is slander. So maybe you're not abusive. Maybe that's not you. But maybe you're, you're a slanderous person. Or maybe uh, the, not everyone's abusive who doesn't know, love, and trust Jesus. But those who worship Jesus, who don't worship Jesus, those who worship Jesus will eventually act, look and act like Jesus. Along the way, Jesus will clean them up. But those who don't love, worship Jesus, who you love matters. Uh, one track is the, uh, will, will yield abuse. Another track will end slander. They're slanderous. You cross me, I'll, I'll say something poorly about you. I'll say false things about you. It's like slander's a big one in our country, in our world. It's just we don't even take time to listen to anyone. We just assume the wrong things and slander people over and over and over. Another fruit of, the, of, of, of loving self is not just abuse, it's not just slander, it's also being brutal, just being mean, treacherous, reckless. These are, these are conceited, heartless. All of this, this is just evidence and fruit of those whose hearts are far from God. This is ultimately what sin does. This is the pervasiveness of it. It, it doesn't just, it starts with, I love myself, I love money, I love pleasure, I don't like good, I don't like God, I don't like any of these things. And then it moves into your, your, how you view yourself. I'm a proud person, I'm an arrogant, I know, I know my way, I don't need your God, I don't need your stuff, I'm good. I, I really don't need anything, I'm self-made man, I'm conceited. You know what, I, I, have, I have now wealth because I love money and now I'm, I don't have self-control so I'll spend it on whatever I want. Forget everyone else. Me and mine, we're good but I don't really look and care about anyone else and I'm happy. I'm fine. And then it moves to when that's threatened then you're going to either you abuse or you're going to be slanderous or you're going to be brutal. You're going to be treacherous. You're going to be reckless. Like This is just one facet of how evil just permeates it goes from who you worship to how you view yourself to how you act. He says that they're heartless. He says they're disobedient to their parents. It affects the kids. Parents, I need you to understand this. If you are disobedient to Jesus' word, will, and ways, don't be surprised when you have disobedient children. And by disobedient children, not just to God, but to you. You are teaching them to disobey authority willfully by continuing to disobey God. Like, but I'm not teaching them. 
Yeah, a lot of stuff we learn is not taught, it's caught. It's true. Think about the things you do. Think about the things you love. Think about how, who you worship and then go, man, do I want my kids when they're my age worshiping God like this? Just think about that. It's a little exercise. It affects not only how we treat others, but it even affects our kids and they become disobedient. It's so pervasive that then it moves into verse five, it affects the church. It says they have the, the appearance of godliness but deny its power. And Paul says you should avoid those good people. Paul is talking about this, this, what's happening in the world and culture is now invading the church. See, the mission, the mission of Satan and demons is not uh, to sit back, wait till Jesus comes back. Sadly, that's the mission of most Christians. Just sit back and wait till Jesus comes back. Don't do nothing. Don't say nothing. Don't offend anyone. Just wait. He's coming back. He's got your back. That's all we do, sit and wait. That's not, but the culture doesn't do that. Satan doesn't do that. He's pervasive. He wants to take those who are sitting, waiting, doing nothing, and flip them to the wrong team. So they ruin their lives. They ruin their marriages. They ruin their legacies. They ruin their children. They ruin their children's children. They ruin other people's lives. If he can make them proud and arrogant and lovers of self, then maybe he can one day get them to be abusive. And then the abusive guy in the church then makes everyone hate Jesus thereafter. And everyone's deconstructing their faith because the, the abusive guy who didn't love Jesus had the appearance of godliness, just sat around the church and, and then harmed everybody. And no one stood up and kicked the abuser out. How, most people's problems with churches are genuine. You hear them like, I don't love Jesus because I got hurt at church. We sympathize with you. But I'm more ticked off. That's not the word I wanted to use, but that's the word I have with the people who let that, that happen. Where were the men? Where, were the, where was the, the Christians? who listened to Paul and said, avoid such people, run them off. So we have, a, we have a zero tolerance policy for men who beat their wives. So if you are one, just get, get ready. We're going to kick you out soon. Uh, it's just, or girlfriend, or, or women. We've had guys in the parking lot, outside, threaten women. We've had women walk in with, with marks on their neck. We've had to oppose guys, tell them they're not welcome here. We, we, we do not, we are not for men abusing women, period. We're not for that. We're also not for their brutality, their selfishness. This is not what we're for. I had a guy this week say, he said this to me, just imagine, just I'm preparing for this sermon. And he says, hey man, I'm going to come check, check out your church. Maybe I can find a, uh, uh, oh, I'm tired of sleeping with uh, uh, non-Christian girls. Maybe I can come to get a good girl. You think I smiled, laughed, and high-fived him? No, I threatened him. I said, if you come here, we will run you off. He goes, no, I'm just joking. I said, no, I'm, I'm not, though. Like, I'm not. So I get it. There's some people in our world today that have been harmed by the church. They've been harmed by wolves, false teaching, abusive, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure. Just They've been ruined by church. They, that's just how, that's been their experience. But, I'm, but I need you to understand, the word of God does not say, leave Jesus. He says, leave those people. Avoid those people. People who call themselves Christians, but they're deceivers. They're harming people. Get them out. So Paul's talking about what's happening in the, in the culture is now invading the church. And so these people who have the appearance of godliness, there's many ways. It's not just the abusers, so that's just... Well, that's on my mind right now. But uh, these, additionally, there's those who, these are people who claim to know God, but they're devoid of the work and power of the Holy Spirit in their life. Like they, 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 they say they're Christians, they, they, they go to prayer meetings, they go to the deacons meeting, they show up, they, it's, you know, they, they look good on the outside, but inwardly they're deceived and they don't love Jesus. This is what Je these, this is the religious version of this is the Pharisee. 
This is where Jesus told them on the outside they were clean and proper. He called them whitewashed tombs, which they look good on the outside. He said inwardly they're decaying flesh. They're dead bodies on the inside. It's, it's not good. It's not helpful. This is, this is the religious person who's devoid of power because they just act like Christians, but they don't live like Christians. They say they love God, but they deny his power. The rebellious version, though, is just as absurd. I need you to see this. It's easy to knock the religious guy who, who acts clean on the outside and says, and then he's a prowler and he, he's, a, he's a manipulator and he preys on women and children. Yeah, we kick those guys out too, but also the rebellious version is just as despicable. We have in our world today now trans clergy and we have drag queen clergy and we have sick, grotesque, pornographic stuff happening in so-called quote-unquote churches that is just as wicked and vile as the religious person. They're just dirty on the outside. You're like, oh, did he just call them dirty? That's offensive. Email me. You have the religious version, and you have the, you have the rebellious version. Both are void. Both are void of the gospel and its power. Why? Because they don't submit to God's word in any way. Additionally, you have the good old-fashioned unrepentant person. It's a person who used to be the norm in the church, but now you have those two crazy categories. But the normal unrepentant person. They're, they're, they're the abusive guy, they're the arrogant guy, they're the self, lacking self-control guy or girl or whoever it is, and you call them to repentance. See, some of you may be, you know, pervasive and evil, but when you're called to repentance, the question is, do you repent? That's you, you're, you repent, then praise God. Keep, praise God, keep repenting. But there's some that Paul's talking about that just won't repent, you call them to Jesus, you call them to repentance, and they don't repent. So you don't just avoid the religious guy who looks good on the outside, but inwardly he, he's faithless. And you don't just avoid the, the, the clergy that's, you know, wearing no clothes and, and letting kids, you know, dance with them. You don't just avoid those. You avoid both. You also avoid the, the, the one who calls himself a Christian and he won't repent and he continues to be abusive, he continues to be uh, a lover of money, he continues to be an addict, he continues to be just you know, self-seeking, self-fulfilling, godless in all of his endeavors, but you know he wants, he wants to make sure he gets out of jail free with uh, the whole Jesus card and maybe he can escape the wrath of God. You avoid that guy too if they don't repent. Jesus says this in Matthew 18. If you call them to repentance and he gives you a process in Matthew 18, you go to the person and say, hey, you've sinned against me, repent. If they don't, bring someone. They don't listen. Bring them to the church. They don't listen. You kick them out. Because you never want to get to that point. You, you hope that in the, the church of Jesus that we would herald repentance and people would go, you know what? I love Jesus. I don't love money, but I've been loving money, so let me repent. Then you have the, the last one, the last one I'm going to name for now, is that just the, the straight heretic false teacher who comes into the church, gets along with everyone, and then just, you know, pulls people aside, whispers, you know, lies, deceit, false teaching, so wants to start his own community group over some book of the Bible that doesn't exist. That guy, false teacher, you avoid him too, heretic. Paul's been dealing with those guys, but there's others. There's not just the false teacher. It's not just the unrepentant, but I need you to see there's a religious version and a rebellious version that, of evil that's permeating the church that wants to look good on the outside, but, to not, but, but be void of faith or be on the outside wicked and vile and wants the church to conform to the wickedness and evil. If not, you're intolerant. Oftentimes, those who are on the outside who, who, who are the most vile and most rebellious oftentimes are those who have been hurt and harmed. So we're not saying we, there's not a place to, to, to walk through pain and to walk through repentance. What we're saying is that that's not the path to, to affirm evil as good. Now, I'm just going to talk directly to the men, the evil men. For among them, verse 6, for among them are those who creep into houses and capture weak women. See, this isn't a new thing in our day. This has been from time and centuries long ago. Burdened with their sins, led astray to various passions. 
always learning. So these guys are the guys who are always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. If you're dating a guy who's like just always, you know, growing in knowledge but like you can never be sure if he, you know, trusts Jesus, he's like, ah, I kind of think there's not absolute truth. He kind of wishy-washy on the Bible being the standard. Break up with that guy. Or girl, just this is them. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupt in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they won't get very far, for their folly will be plain as it was for those two men. Saying there's a type of man, man who creeps on women, who preys on women. He preys on women. We've had the privilege to do a lot of ministry. A lot of ministry to women who've been abused, who've been sexually abused, who've been harmed. This is why we're so passionate about building men. We're not, we're not, men are not the problem. Sin is the problem, and Christians who won't deal with the sin problem are the, also the problem. But the problem is sin. The, the issue is Jesus, and we want to build men up to be a blessing to women and children, to love and serve in the ways Jesus loved and served. You notice Jesus went after 12 guys first. That's what he picked. He picked 12 men. They were a rough, ragged group of men. They were different religious parties, different ideologies, different worldview, and Jesus sought them out. And guess what happened? Women and children felt safe. Women and children gathered. Jesus didn't fail to reach the women and children by getting them men. But what he did was he instilled in the men the power of God, the word of God. And, and, and men are to then therefore lead, love, and serve women and children in a way that reflects the God who made them. This is where Adam failed to do, and Jesus succeeded. And so we want to spend time, we want to create environments, we want to help love and serve those who've been abused, who've been harmed, who've been uh, 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 beat or molested or who need to walk through some serious care and counseling. But what often creates an environment for that is a safe environment where men are leading and are protecting and loving and serving. And so I'm proud of this church for that. I'm proud of you. And so... These type of men, though, these evil men here, they, they see these women burdened with sin. What this means is due to their perhaps past guilt, uh, their past sin, these women are particularly susceptible to false teaching. So what ends up happening is two different paths. One, they, they, because of their sin, because of their guilt of their past, they, they deny what God says is good. So that's the first path. And the second path is, or they just resort to all sin is, is acceptable and permissible. Example is that you see this with uh, a woman, perhaps, who's been uh, sexually abused or manipulated by a man. Uh, she might think the first, she might first think all men are evil. All men are evil. Just resort to, she's been harmed by a man and therefore concludes that all men are evil. And so this is the first part. This is the one where, this is the, the lie, the false teaching there that's denying what God has said. God has not said all men are evil. He says sin is evil and that man may have been evil. And those men might have been evil. So that is true. But because of the abuse, because of the environment that woman has been in, because of the trauma she has experienced or the guilt that she has, it's hard for her to see that. And so the lie that she's led to believe is that is denying what God calls good. And now she struggles to, maybe she doesn't get married. Maybe she doesn't ever want to be around men. And it's just this environment, this lie that, that, that God has, uh, or sorry, Satan has used because of the trauma she's experienced to whisper the lie that, that all men are evil. Therefore, she will never pursue a husband. She'll never uh, trust her husband that, that the life that, the, that their husband may want to lead and love and serve her through sacrificial love like Jesus. She's, she's void of because she's believing this lie. It takes a lot of work to get through that. We're not, we don't expect someone to just overnight. That's work that has to be done. That's work that has to be done. But the work is going back to what does the Bible say, what is true? And so the first, the, the first uh, example is, is the woman sexually abused who who's denies what God says is good and says all men are evil. The second is the same woman, same experience, manipulated, abused, mistreated. She then uh, plunges herself into all sorts of sexual sin and all sexual acts. This is very common in the porn industry. Many of the women who come out of the porn industry have been sexually abused prior to that. So there's two paths that 
tend to happen, where, where Paul is saying that there's these women who, because they've been captured uh, and they're, they're burdened by their sins, they're led astray by various passions. One is deny the truth about who God is and, and about what God's word says, and therefore they call uh, what God calls good, they call evil. And then the other is to just say, there is no evil, there is no sin, I'm just going to go do anything and everything and, and, and rebel that way. Neither of them, neither woman, if you talk to, would say they've chose the right path. They just don't know what to do. They just feel stuck. Neither of them are proud of where they're at. Neither of them want to stay where they're at. But these are the, this is the result of, in, in, it, of the lies that can be believed through these types of experiences. Another example would be, say you are just generally shamed and ashamed of your sin. Just everyone, you just think of, I'm just so ashamed of my sin. There's two paths that tend to happen. It's the same two paths, though. It's the, you go the uh, deny what God says is good path, and then what do you do? You end up, this is where you get weird, like, religious route. This is where the Pharisees go. They start making rules up to control their environment in order to not, you know, cross the line. And so this is where people who are ashamed of something and ashamed of sin, they go, they become, they're like, all of a sudden, I want to become clergy. I don't like my past. I was involved in violence, gangs, or whatever. Now, if I could just become a pastor, then maybe I'll have arrived, and maybe God will love me, and other people will see me differently because I have changed. And I just, I need the title. I need the experience so that people will view me in this certain light. Or they, or they rebel, and they go into, you know, a woman becomes a nun, a man becomes a priest. They're just, they, they do the most extreme thing. That's among even believers, but even non-Christians, they're ashamed of sin, and so they're like, ah, oh, I, I, I overate, and I wasn't disciplined, and so now I'm Buddhist. Oh, wow. Why? Well, because Buddhism allows me, you know, I was angry all the time, and now I'm no longer angry. Why? Because I, you know, I meditate all the time, and, you know, I'm really into yoga now. I'm doing all these things, and I'm, I'm deeply spiritual now, and this deep spirituality has helped me. I'm vegan, and, you know, I'm vegan, and that really helps because, you know, I, I used to be violent, but, you know, to think about if I eat meat, if I eat meat, then that's kind of violence, and I don't want to be a part of any violence, so now I'm, now I'm you know, I'm vegan. And, uh, you know, or I'm just, oh, CrossFit, I'm a fitness fanatic now. You know, I, why? Because, you know, I was fat. And I don't want to be fat anymore. So now I'm just zealous about athletics. And, you know, um, I, I, you know this, is, this is what we do when we feel shame. We try to cover it with religiosity. Is, is working out, eating proper diet, are these things, you know, sinful? No. But if they're what you're doing to cover the shame of your sin, this is a false religion, a false ideology. This is what we oftentimes can get led down when we feel shame. Uh, the, in, the lie we can believe is that I gotta now fix it and cover it up. The other is feel shame for your sin, which is the most common in our culture today, at least as far as publicized, that, that is sought to be normalized, just a, a, a normalized, is just uh, affirm it. You feel that way today? Absolutely you do. Good job. You're so brave. You are so brave. I know you're going against God's word well and ways, but I need to be tolerant and diverse and just tell you you're brave. We, tar- we call, well, you know what? I don't care what God says, but the world says you tell your truth. You believe your, 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 your lie. Now, they don't say it that way. They call it the truth, but it's a lie. Right? That's the world we live in. That's the world we live in. It just affirms and normalizes sin. It's the woman who feels guilty and shame. Remember, this is all out of guilt and shame. They've been burdened by their sins. It's the woman who's been guilt, feels guilt and shame uh, for her abortion, and she's now pro-choice. Why? Because if, she, if she's not pro-choice, and she says what she did was wrong. Or it's the guy who has all of his girlfriends, you know, have abortions. He's like, I'm pro-choice. Why? Well, i got to cover my sin and my shame. Because if I'm pro-life, then that means I'm a hypocrite. And that means that I have to repent. That means that there's truth. It means there's morality, which then ultimately leads to there's a God. And I'm guilty. So, pro-choice. Selfish. Conceited. Wicked. 
reckless, treacherous men and women. That's how it plays out. It's where you, it leads to. It's not leading you to life. These lies are leading you to death. It's all because we're, we've, been, we've sinned and therefore we're shamed. Or we've been sinned against and now we feel ashamed. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They rebelled, they hid, they, they covered themselves in shame. The world around us knows and feels the effects of sin and shame but cannot do anything with it but masquerade it behind lies or call evil good and change the definition of morality. Only Jesus can rescue sinners. Only Jesus can rescue us out of our guilt and out of our shame and give us new life. So this is, we recognize here that the same thing that's happening in this text where these women are, are easily tricked. I need you to see this. This is the, comp- the comparison here, that they're easily tricked. is rooted back all the way in Genesis, all the way in Genesis, when, when the serpent Satan showed up to Eve, and he caused her to believe lies. Satan was the first one to capture a woman and burden her with sins and lead her astray after various passions. His tactic is still the same. Adam should have cut the serpent's head off, but he didn't. The problem is still the same, that Satan is whispering lies and the men are sitting on the sidelines. Jesus has a different path for us. He has a different path for us. He he has the path where the men lead. The women listen to the word of God. They don't deviate from the word of God. The whole church founds a a new captain, a new master. His name is Jesus and submits to him in the scriptures. And so where we we, we live in this world that we recognize that it's pervasive in sin and, and it has hurt and it has effects. But he says this, that there's a spirit behind this evil in the world, and it's demonic. He, he, he refers to just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. What this was, was these two men, back in Exodus, Moses was standing before the Pharaoh and demonstrating the power of God, the truth of God, and he took his staff and he turned it into a serpent by the power of God. And so these two demonic magicians counterfeit that miracle by turning their staffs into serpents as well. What he's saying here is that the world has a way to find a counterfeit for everything that God creates. Everything that God is doing, the world will find a counterfeit. They will deny the truth. Jonas and and Jambres, they opposed Moses. And if you're looking for where these names are found, these are, those are, they're not in the Exodus account, but there are two men that oppose Moses here. Uh, it is the, uh, the extra-biblical scholarship where they refer to throughout history and time as these two names. So that's where you're going to find those names. And so these two men opposed Moses. They opposed the truth. They, 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 they made a counterfeit truth. The world we live in counterfeits the truth of God's word. And what ends up happening, Moses' staff, which is a serpent, swallows the other two and then becomes a staff again. He says this, though people like this will not get very far for their folly will be plain as it was for these two men. See, these two men opposed the truth. They were, they were filled with a, a demonic spirit. They were used by Satan, they, who is a liar. They made a counterfeit truth. And these two men were found to be they were exposed when Moses' staff ate their staff. But what ended up happening, I need you to see this, what ended up happening, while Paul says, don't worry, their folly will be plain so that all these men can see, you know, that you'll see that they're foolish and folly. You'll see this. But what ends up happening? It's exposed. But what does Pharaoh do? So you go, yep, Moses, you're believing the truth. That's the truth. You win. No, he says, I will not let your people go. I will not obey God. His heart is hardened. His heart grows harder. See, the, same, the truth that, 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 is, that, is, that, is, that goes out against the pervasive evil sometimes makes people 
double down on their evil, double down on their obstinance, and double down in sin. The Puritans were fond of saying, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. So the truth goes out, and the folly is plain to see. There's two categories of people, those who melt in repentance and love and trust in Jesus, and those who harden and sin in rebellion like Pharaoh and oppose God, his word, will, and ways. And that's the culture we're in. That's the opposition we're in. That's what we must understand if we're gonna do ministry, if we're gonna do life, if we're gonna live in the evil world that we're in. We must understand these things. And so, in closing, that's all evil. The whole passage is on the pervasiveness of evil. So I wanna end with this. What might revival look like? What might reformation and revival look like? What do we mean by that? Reformation being that, that the church reforms. It repents. It changes. It grows. It goes back to the Bible, to sound doctrine. It, revival breaks out in, in ways that we improve upon what the church has already accomplished. That's good. There's, re, there's renewal. There's restoration. There's just vibrancy. There's conversion. There's life. There's revival. What would that look like? I'm going to give you five things. Five things in closing, and I'll be brief. I could give you probably a bunch more, but these five things are a must in revival. Number one, persistence in prayer. Persistence in prayer. Revival will not, every revival in human history, even the ones in the scripture, began with prayer. God's people praying. Prayer is the battlefield. Prayer is where the the battle is won. Prayer is also a genuine, not just asking for things, but it's a genuine seeking after God. Like, I love you, God. So we're praying. There's persistent prayer privately. There's publicly. There's, there's just prayer meetings popping up. People want to commune and pray and, and depend on God. There's this persistence there. So I want to, again, commend our church. Not only have we, uh, had, I love how the men have stood, stood up, stood upright, pursue God. Uh, I love how we've created an environment and then we're seeking to continue to cultivate an environment where we can care for women, children, particularly those who've been harmed or abused. I love that about our church. But I also love that we're a praying church. We're a praying church. Before every service, there's a group of people that gather pray and pray. And these prayer meetings are getting longer and longer and longer because people have more to pray about. They're bringing their requests before service. And what we're finding is like we have, people's prayer requests are getting answered. Some of you are Christians now because they prayed for you in the prayer meeting. And some of you are, are not Christians yet, and they're praying for you in the prayer meeting. And you're going to get saved. And Jesus, you're going to meet Jesus. And your life's going to be transformed because our church believes that prayer is where the battle is won. And so there's a persistence there. There's a persistence there. Additionally, and all of our groups are, are filled with prayer. Additionally, there's faithful preaching. In every revival, there's faithful preaching. Why? Because Romans 10 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of Christ. You cannot be saved without hearing the gospel. You can't have faith without it. So we preach it. Acts 2, they preached it. Jesus showed up and preached it. John the Baptist showed up and preached. The the gospel moves forward through preaching. Luther famously quoted, talked about how the Reformation continued to move with power. All he did, he said, was pray, preach, and drink beer. That's what he said. That's what Luther said. And it moved pervasive. This is the approach I take. That's, the, that's, my, that's my, you know, like how, do, how do you start revival? Luther style. That's me. Call me Lutheran. True conversion. That's the third thing. That's the third thing. That's the third thing that happened. True, genuine conversion. This means non-Christians become Christians. Some of you are in here, you were that. You're like, I was uh, violently, maybe not violently, but adamantly opposed to Jesus. Paul, the author of 2 Timothy, was violently opposed to Jesus. And then Jesus saved him. Non-Christians get converted. They literally meet Jesus and they go from hating him to loving him. That's part of revival. Non-Christians get saved. But also, true conversion, nominal churchgoers. People have been attending church for forever. They, they really don't do anything about Jesus. They just say they're Christians. They wake up. They're like, ah, I'm con-. they get really converted. They get a hunger and thirst for Jesus and his kingdom. And then there's those Christians who are just, 
falling asleep every Sunday, who don't really care about, they don't wake up with the zeal to know God, to read his word, all of a sudden they become hungry. They're waking up and God's word is alive. They're passionate. They're praying. They just, they, they're seeing things in the scripture they'd never seen before. They're just, they're just excited about the work of Jesus, his, his church. It happens. True conversion happens in revival. Number four, pervasive repentance. In our text, we see pervasive evil, right? Pervasive evil. Pervasive repentance is repenting from all that evil, turning from all of that evil. You see people in the world who are lovers of of money, lovers of self, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. All these people start repenting, turning. They've met Jesus and they're, they're leaving their sin and trusting Jesus, and they're, 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 leave, they're, they're living lives of holiness. There's a deep pursuit of holiness. Christ, Non-Christians becoming Christians and pursuing holiness, and Christians killing sin, fighting sin, following Jesus, and they're just continuing in holy pursuit of Jesus and his mission. And then all of a sudden, reconciliation breaks out. You realize when you've sinned against someone, you got to go apologize. you got to repent. You, just repentance, reconciliation, family units are restored. Life is restored. Relationships are restored. Repentance happens. Not fake repentance, true gospel repentance. Willful evil is stopped. You start, the laws start changing. Life starts changing. Why? Because Jesus is king and we all agree and we all want to live out the glories of heaven here on earth as Jesus taught us to pray. Pervasive repentance. And last and finally, genuine worship. Genuine worship. Here in our passage, there's a worship problem which led to evil. Love, worship of self led to all other kinds of evil. Genuine worship is a genuine love for Jesus that leads to a pervasive righteousness, a pervasive repentance. Genuine worship. We, love, we worship Jesus in all of life, not just on Sunday, but in our home and in our relationships, at our work, at our job, in art, in culture, wherever we find ourselves, where we live, work, and play, we are worshipers of Jesus You don't take a back seat. You're just in the game worshiping Jesus with your whole life. That's what reformation, that's what revival looks like. And while we cannot cause revival, it must be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can pray for it, but we can also set the sail. Imagine you're you're on a sailboat, and what do you need to move a sailboat across the water? You need wind. But if you don't put up the sail, it doesn't matter if the wind comes. But if you, we, we, we lift up the sail, praying for the wind, playing, praying for the Holy Spirit to move so that we're ready. We're ready to move when he moves. How do we set the sail? We do these five things. Where do you, are you per, persistent in prayer? Be encouraged, keep praying. Are you faithful to continue to hear Bible teaching and, and preaching? Continue to, to be a part of that. Don't forsake the gathering. If you've been converted by Jesus, keep pursuing him. Keep repenting. Keep worshiping him. If you don't know Jesus, ask about him from someone here. Or go seek out others to lead them to Jesus. That's what Reformation, that's what revival looks at. Looks like do these things genuinely with a, a pure heart, a heart of worship. Set the sail. Pray for revival. And don't be surprised when it comes. And when it comes, please hear this. When it comes, it will happen in the midst of deep, profound hostility and difficulty. Jesus will set, we will set the sail. The wind may come. And the wind might blow through harsh winds and waves, trials and circumstances. We have the trust and have the hope that the kingdom of heaven will have no end, that Jesus himself will, will reap what he has sown and the hearts of men, the kingdom, will continue to spread like a mustard seed, continue to grow. His kingdom will have no end. He tells us this, and we're gonna do a whole Christmas series on it, so I shouldn't get ahead of myself there. I know I'm over time. So as we respond, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna worship. We're gonna worship. 
We're going to remember Jesus through the taking of communion, and we're going to celebrate Jesus through singing. And so if you're ready, I'm ready. Let us enter into this time with genuine hearts, longing for Jesus to revive us, to, to revive the city we live in, to revive this church, to revive the nation, to revive all the nations so that we look forward to the day where we will be in Christ's presence forever with the nations, worshiping him, where sin has been dealt with once and for all, and we're in the new heavens, in the new earth, where sin is no more, death is no more, pain is no more, suffering is no more, and we made it to the end. Let us set the sail and let the Spirit of God blow on us, and may we see great and mighty things. Let's pray. Jesus, bless us unto that end. Bless us unto that end. May we be a church that is dedicated to prayer, preaching, seeking true conversions, repenting and worshiping. And may we worship you now with our whole hearts. Grant us continual understanding that if we are going to be Christians living in this world, that where evil is pervasive, just as evil spreads like leaven and bread, so does the kingdom spread like leaven. May we push back darkness, herald light, and may we see the kingdom of God advance with mighty power in our city in a ways that we can't even ask or imagine. Holy Spirit, will you do that? Revive us, bless us, use us. In Jesus' name, amen.